We're in Mark chapter 10. We got a big chunk here. We're going to be in Mark chapter 10, verse 32 down through 52. If you picked up a black Bible of ours, it's page 846. Mark chapter 10, verse 32 down through 52. Again, we stand. We believe this is God's word to us. So let's read together. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink, and the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called to them and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go, go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. This is God's word. You may be seated. Well, hey, good morning. Great to see you. My name is Luke. It's uh, wonderful to have you. And it's going to be fun to go through the Bible here together today. Um, if you didn't have a Bible or you need one uh, or you need a pen if you want to take notes or fill out that card or any of that stuff, we've got some uh, ushers that have the, that stuff. So if you need it, uh, just go ahead and put your hand up. They'll be able to pass out a Bible. 
And uh, you can look at that. I know that would have been helpful like three minutes ago, but, but hey, better late than never. Um, listen, while they're passing that out, I want to I give you just an update on, on our Roots initiative and to be able to celebrate some stuff with you. For those of you who are newer or you're not familiar with this, uh, our church has purchased 10 and a half acres that's directly next door here. Uh, so you just look right out the window. That, that first 10 and a half acres is ours. It belongs to us. We purchased it, um, but we're in the process of paying for it. And the, the reason we called it the Roots Initiative is that we wanted to lay down roots. We want to be here for a while. We want to have a long, permanent presence in this community of people faithfully preaching out and living out the effects of the gospel. And so that's why we did it. Um, I actually just heard recently about a, a friend of mine uh, who pastors a church, and they are in a rented situation just like we are. And their uh, landlord uh, went into foreclosure, and they're not going to be able to renew their lease on the building they've been meeting in. And so they're kind of out of luck. They've got to find a new spot. Uh, we have four years on our lease, and we don't want that kind of thing to happen. We want to have a permanent uh, place that we can call home. So that's what Roots is about. And we just passed a cool kind of milestone on our journey toward raising a million dollars to pay for that. And we just, cr- just crossed it. So we just got two-thirds of the way. If you look in the program, you can see that. Two-thirds of the way to the goal. Yeah. So thank you. Um, thanks for giving to that. Thanks for praying toward that end. And uh, our hope is that we could really try to finish that, uh, that idea of, of paying for the land, get that done by the end of the year, and then begin to look towards what's next in terms of being able to, to build something on it that we can use and, and go that direction. So thanks for your generosity, and uh, thanks for being part of that. Well, today we are going to finish Mark chapter 10. We started this series back in February. And uh, Mark chapter 10 is, is a significant kind of ending point for this particular section of Scripture because next week, starting in chapter 11, from chapter 11 to the end of Mark in chapter 16, covers the last week of Jesus' life, the Passion Week, it could be called. Uh, next week, we'll look kind of at Palm Sunday and the stuff that's celebrated there. Um, but, but we're kind of hitting this end of, of, of Mark 10, and i got to tell you, for, for me, I have looked forward to preaching on this text for 10 months. Last fall, I knew we were going to be preaching on Mark, and one of my seminary classes was on the Gospels, and we spent a lot of time looking at Mark. And as we looked at that, there were some things that we saw that just absolutely made me thrilled to preach Mark, generally speaking, but specifically to get to this passage and to get to the, the just the the genius of what Mark is showing us here about Jesus. And so in order to, for you to appreciate that, in order to kind of bring you in on some of my excitement on it, I need to, I need to tell you a story. And it's kind of a long story, so you can settle in. Um, but it's an interesting story, and it's a true story, and it's really going to give you some flavor and context into what we're going to look at here this morning. All right? So the story begins with a shepherd boy taking lunch to his brother's. This shepherd boy was, was one of the youngest kids in his family, and his brothers were off, and they were fighting a war, and his dad said, hey, why don't you go take them some cheese, take them some food, take them some things that they're going to need in the battle. And so this little shepherd boy heads off to the battle, and he gets there, and he sees that there's two armies lined up across from each other, but no one's fighting. And this little boy uh, gives the food to his brothers and says, what's going on here? It doesn't seem like anything's happening. And the only thing that was happening was that once, every day, this giant of a man would come forward and would challenge the army of Israel that someone would have the courage to fight him. And he'd challenge them and he would blaspheme the name of God and say, your God can't do anything, you can't stop us. And that's just kind of what would go on. Everyone was too chicken, no one would do it, no one would step up, no one would fight. Well, the shepherd boy arrives with lunch and he hears this giant of a man yell this. He says, 
y'all are going to do something about this, right? Like, this seems like a problem. What's, what's going on? And no one would. And so he takes a smooth stone and a sling, and he sinks the rock into the forehead of the giant, and he cuts off his head, and King David becomes on the map. Now, he wasn't king at that point, just a shepherd boy. But fast forward a few years, and that shepherd boy who killed the giant is now king over Israel. He's prosperous, he's successful, he's reigning, he's ruling. He's got this big, beautiful house that he lives in. And it occurs to him one day, you know what, I I really ought to, since I have this big, beautiful house, I I ought to build God a house, right? Uh, To this point, the people are still worshiping God in a tabernacle, kind of a tent-like structure. He says, if I've got this big house, they need a, God needs a house. Well, that very night, God visits David in a dream. And in the dream, God basically says, listen, David, I don't need you to serve me. I don't live in a house made with human hands. I don't, I don't need you to serve me. I'm going to serve you. I'm going to establish your kingdom. You can read about it. 2 Samuel chapter 7 says this. When your days are fulfilled, this is God speaking to David, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. God says, David, that's a great thought. I'm glad that you want to serve me, but you can't serve me. Let me serve you. One of your descendants will reign forever. That's about 1,000 B.C., Fast forward about 300 years, and the kingdom of Israel is not looking so good. By this point, the the kingdom has splintered, and people are beginning to go, what happened to that vision of a kingdom that would come out of the line of David? Where did that go? What is going to take place? And yet there's hope. The prophet Isaiah begins to prophesy, and he writes something down that if you've ever been to a Christmas Eve service, you've heard this talked about. You've heard Isaiah's prophecy about this. He says, listen, a king is coming. There's hope. Isaiah 9, 6 says, for to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Isaiah says, listen, there's hope. A king will come. A child will be born in the line of David and he will reign. Then you fast forward 120, 130 years, and it's looking even worse. Because at this point, not only has a godly king been raised up, but the nation of Babylon has come into Jerusalem and has conquered the people of Israel. They took away their best and brightest, they burned down the temple, they burned and destroyed the city, and they haul all these people off to Babylon. And for 70 years, the people of God live as captives, as slaves, on the outskirts of the most ungodly city in the world, Babylon. Now, during the 70 years that they're there, they're going, what happened? What happened to our kingdom? Where was that king? In the meantime, the Persians end up conquering the Babylonians. And by God's incredible providence and grace, the Persians end up having a Jewish queen named Esther. And through that and through a number of other things, a number of people, a remnant of the people of Israel, are allowed by the Persians to come back into Jerusalem. And they come back, the place is in ruins. It's a dump. 
The wall's all broken. The, the, the temple has been destroyed. It's in disarray. So they get together, a group of people. This is in the books of, of Nehemiah and Ezra. And they get to a group of people and they build the wall so they can be safe. And they rebuild the temple and they begin to hope maybe someday the king will come. Well, that's kind of where the Old Testament ends. And right at about 400 B.C., God goes radio silent. For 400 years, none of his prophecies are written down or recorded. God isn't speaking. Now, God is moving in history, but God has gone quiet. And yet still, he's arranging what happens in the world. And so, in 331 B.C., Alexander the Great shows up, and he conquers the Persians. Maybe you've heard of Alexander the Great. He was a great leader and ruler for the Greek Empire, and they come in, and they, they crush the Persians, and he overtakes that. But it's only seven or eight more years before Alexander the Great dies. Well, when he dies, what happens is what happens in a lot of instances when a great leader dies is there begins to be a fight over who's going to replace him. How's this going to work? And so Alexander the Great had two generals, Ptolemy and Seleucus. And these two generals both led armies, both had loyal followings, both were significant leaders, and they begin to battle over who's going to control this vast empire. Over time, the Seleucids end up winning that battle, at least for the, for the, the land in Palestine, the land of Israel. And so these Greeks are ruling over the Jews that are there in that land. And in 167 B.C., a really bad guy is king for the Seleucids. His name is Antiochus IV. Now, there's a reason why you've never met a kid named Antiochus, okay? Because this is a bad guy. He's really, really a bad dude. And especially for the Jews, he was, he was horrible. And in 167, Antiochus is ruling and reigning, and he is basically trying to get rid of the, the people of Israel's faith in God. So he does a number of things, and if you think that there's persecution today, and if you think there's you know, not freedom of religion today, Antiochus was bad news, all right? So, so first, he outlawed the people being able to celebrate the Sabbath, the weekly holy day that God had given. You can't do that anymore. Next, he said you can't sacrifice in the temple. All the temple worship, it's over. Third, no more circumcision. All the men were like, whew. No, they weren't. Right, Because circumcision was a sign of the covenant of God's people, that God was with them. He begins to burn the Torah. He begins to burn the scriptures. And then, worst of all, and this was the most upsetting and the most infuriating, he goes in December of 167 into the temple. And there he sets up an altar to Zeus. He sets up an altar to Zeus in the temple of the God of Israel. And not only does he set up an altar, but he then gets a pig and sacrifices it on the altar. The most unclean, the most filthy animal a Jew could imagine sacrificed to Zeus in the temple of the one true God. And a number of people start to go, we've had enough. Then the next year, a man rises up whose son was a priest, who was the son of a priest who had been asked to do a lot of things. And this, this young man rises up. His name was Judah. Judah Maccabee. And Judah Maccabee, just so you know, Maccabee is not his last name. Maccabee is like a nickname. You know what Maccabee means? The sledgehammer. <laughs> right? So this is Judah the sledgehammer. 
right? And that's a fitting title. And so Judah recruits and leads a group of militia, guerrilla kind of fighters that become known as the Maccabeans, and they begin to fight against the Seleucids, and they have incredible military success. And they have so much success that actually three years later of the day that Antiochus had sacrificed that pig, Judah and the Maccabeans ride into Jerusalem, and as Judah rides into Jerusalem, people are waving palm branches, and they're shouting, Hosanna, which means, God save us, Hosanna in the highest, and they're shouting out, and Judah Maccabee goes into the temple, and he cleanses it out from all the idolatry that's happening in the temple, and he reestablishes it as a place to worship the one true God, Judah the hammer. Well, the Jews have a period of relative ease there because they you know, beat the Seleucids, but it's not long. It's about 80 years. And in 63 BC, the Romans show up. The Romans are big and they're bad and they're tough and they're rich and they are stronger and better than you in just about every way. And they conquer the Jews. They set up this government system that's kind of a puppet government where they use sort of Jews who had sold out to, to help rule, people like Herod the Great and people like that. And they begin to rule, and, and people are going, what happened? God had promised a king. God had promised a kingdom. We thought maybe, maybe that Judah the hammer guy, maybe a guy like him, we thought that was maybe the answer, and it's, and it's not. What, what's the deal here? Maybe we need to make something happen. Maybe we need to take matters into our own hands. Mike Goheen is a seminary professor that I get to study under, and he wrote a book called Drama of Scripture. And in that book, he describes the mindset that's going on during this, this time. He says this, during this period, a kind of just before, uh, you know, B.C. becomes A.D., during this period, about 10 or 12 revolutionary movements arose around a messianic or quasi-messianic figure. The people were weary of subjection to pagan masters, full of longing for the coming of God's kingdom, and ready to act to help usher it in. They're hoping, they're longing, they're anticipating, they're craving a king. They're craving an anointed one, a Messiah who would come and deliver them from the oppression they experienced. Now, there was a lot of confusion about what this Messiah figure would be. Would he be a king? Yes, for sure. Would he be a warrior king? Probably. Would he be a priest, maybe leading a kind of spiritual renewal in the process? Yeah, maybe. Was it even possible that there would be kind of a, a king figure and then also a separate priest figure, maybe a prophet figure, and like together these people would kind of be like the Messiah that had promised? Yeah, maybe. There was some thought about that. Was there any thought that this Messiah would be a suffering servant? You've got to be kidding. No way. We've suffered enough. We've been serving enough. We've been subjected enough. We don't need more of that. We need a king. We need a hammer. And that's what the people are longing for and hoping for. Which brings us to the Gospel of Mark. If you have your Bible, you can flip back to Mark chapter 1, right where we started. One of the first people we meet in Mark chapter 1 it's this guy, John the Baptist. He wears camel's hair and eats locusts. He's kind of, a, kind of a crazy dude. He's out in the wilderness, and he's telling people, repent, turn from your sin, God is coming. 
And he's drawing huge crowds. I mean, people are wondering, what is going on with this? And in chapter 1, verse 7, it, it describes what one of the things that John would say. He preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. John says, listen, I know you're all coming out, and I know you're intrigued by what I'm saying, but there is someone coming after me. He is so great. He is so wonderful. I don't deserve to untie his shoes. Huh, who could that be? In the Gospel of John, it records that one of the things John the Baptist said at one point was, you know, he's there, and there's all these people surrounding him, hearing him, and being baptized. And at some point, John points, and he goes, Behold, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And don't you just imagine that the crowd parted, and they all began to look, who is this guy? Do you know what they saw? They saw a handyman, son of a carpenter from Nazareth. They kind of went, really? Like, that's not kind of what we were thinking. That doesn't seem very royal, right? right the, the, the handyman from Holbrook here? <laughs> that's what Nazareth was like. No one's heard of that. No one knows that. Where, where, what? The carpenter here? And John says, yeah, that's the guy. Well, people are intrigued. People are confused. But then you hear Jesus' message, and it's definitely exciting because what you read in Mark 1.15 is that Jesus kind of sums up his message. Mark tells us there that Jesus' core message from the beginning was, listen, the time is fulfilled. The moment we've been waiting for, it's here. The time's fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Get ready because the kingdom is here. Well, surely that would have thrilled people. Yes, wow, it's coming. But then as you read the rest of Mark that we've been looking at over these months, what you see is that Jesus is a very confusing figure to people. Because on one hand, he talks about a kingdom, but he doesn't look very kingly. He doesn't do a lot that seems very powerful. Right, like think about it. What's Jesus' first move, right? He's got a thousand days to change the world. What's his first move? He builds a team. All right, so imagine the draft for Jesus' team. First pick for the Nazareth world changers is fishermen. Second pick for the Nazareth world changers is fishermen. Third pick, fishermen. Fourth pick, fishermen. Commentators are like, Jesus is not very good at building a kingdom. Fifth pick, tax collector, cheat, liar, right? So he's got a bunch of Hebrew school dropouts and crooks. This is his plan? And then he doesn't, like, go straight to Jerusalem and start building an army. What does he do? He goes to all these little podunk places. And he preaches about this kingdom, and he talks about what it's like to live in a kingdom like that and how you should live. And, and he heals, and there, so there's real power that's going out as he heals the poor and the blind and the marginalized and the overlooked. And so there's these moments when people are like, yeah, let's crown him king, and these other moments where people are like, what's the deal? They can't quite see him. Nobody, as you read Mark, seems to really see him. In fact, Mark tells us that that's happening in, in a, a, a passage of Scripture that really started out this section that we're in right now. Turn to Mark chapter 8, if you have your Bible there, and look in verse 22. Uh, starting in verse 22, Mark gives us kind of a living parable, a story, something that actually happened, that Jesus actually did 
but he did it this way in order to, to communicate some kind of important truth. So Mark chapter 8, verse 22, and they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village, and when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. What's this story about? Right, Every other place that Jesus heals, he doesn't need to spit, he doesn't need to touch, he doesn't need to go through some incantation, he just speaks, and it happens. Right? This is the same guy who spoke and the water was still. What's going on here? Like temporary loss of power? No. What's going on is that Jesus is saying, this is what everybody's like. I do this amazing work and they kind of see it, but not really. And they need to really see who I am. Well, immediately after that story, there in, in Mark chapter 8, Jesus takes his disciples away on a retreat, and they start talking. And Jesus says, hey, who do people say I am? And they give some answers. And then he says, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter, always eager to speak up, real leader-type guy, goes, hey, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, bingo. And then in the next verse, Jesus says, now here's what's going to happen. You can read this in Mark 8, 31. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. At that point, Peter goes, oh, Jesus, I need to talk for a minute. Come here. What are you doing? This isn't, this isn't how it works. It says that, that Peter rebuked Jesus. And Jesus' response is, you know, Peter, I've heard something like this before. It sounds a lot like Satan. Because you don't get it, do you? And then Jesus goes on to say, listen. If anyone would come after me, if anyone would follow me, you've got to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Even Jesus' closest disciples don't really see it. What didn't they see? What did they miss? My friend Brian Berger is a pastor at one of our other redemption congregations, and he says that the reason that no one could understand Jesus is because they didn't know about Pac-Man. You know Pac-Man, right? The video game? you're too young to have grown up with Pac-Man, God have mercy on you. It's a great game, right? And so Pac-Man is going and he's eating the little deals and he's running away from the ghost. But here's what you know if you've played Pac-Man. What happens in Pac-Man if, you're, if you go all the way left? You come out on the right. And if you go all the way right, you come out on the left. And what Brian says, he says, listen, the whole world, the whole way the world works is to say, the way you go up is to go up. But the whole way Jesus works is like Pac-Man. You go down to come up. You try to go up, you come down. You try to be great, you're humbled. You humble yourself, God exalts you. That's what they didn't get. That's what they couldn't see. What well, isn't just this one time when Jesus predicts his death, it happens again in chapter 9. In chapter 9, verse 31, Jesus is teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. 
When he is killed after three days, he will rise. And then verse 32 is very insightful. Look at it. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. Why didn't they get it? Because no one works like this. Right? We're easy to bash the disciples, but look, look around the world. The world is full of bombastic, prideful, big, loud leadership. Of course they didn't get it. And so they're walking on the path. Immediately after Jesus tells them this, they're walking along. And Jesus a little later goes, hey, guys, what were you talking about back there? I couldn't quite hear you. They, go, ah. they don't want to tell him. They're embarrassed. They're, they're ashamed. Why? Because what they were talking about was they were arguing over which one of them was the greatest. And Jesus goes, guys, you need some Pac-Man glasses here. You're not seeing this. He says, verse 35, if anyone would be first, he must be last and servant of all. So all of that brings us to where we started today in chapter 10, verse 32. Because for a third time, Jesus is going to tell his disciples what's going to happen. We read it in verse 33. He's teaching them, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. This is the most specific, the most detailed. He's going to be spit on. He's going to be mocked. He's going to be killed. Whoosh, right over their heads. They don't see him. So what happens immediately after this story? Well, James and John come up to Jesus. They say, hey, we need a favor. Now, just so you know, if you're not familiar with this, Jesus had his 12 disciples, but then he had kind of his inner circle, three disciples, Peter, James, and John. James and John are brothers. And so James and John get this idea going, you know what? Peter's kind of a loud mouth. He always thinks speaks before he thinks. We don't really need him. Let's go to Jesus and, and, you know, bounce this idea off him. So they go to Jesus. They say, hey, Jesus, we want you to do something for us. Jesus says, what? What do you want me to do? Actually, let's just go ahead and look at it. Verse 35, the sons of Zebedee came up to him and said to him, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Now, it's important. This will come up later. They call him teacher. It means instructor. It's kind of a, not a very personal, not a very reverent term. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we want. Verse 36, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. They say, Jesus, we know you're a king. We, we, want, the, we want to be the right hand and left hand men. Put, it, put us there. We, we're ready. We, we got some stuff to offer. We think, you know, that whole great conversation, I, they didn't think there was an answer. We're pretty sure there was. You need our help. Jesus said to them, verse 38, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? What's Jesus talking about here? Well, oftentimes when Jesus talks about the cup, he's talking about experiencing suffering, experiencing punishment, often the idea of the wrath of God. In fact, he will say in Mark chapter 14, Father, if it's possible, remove this cup from me, this cup of suffering I'm going to experience. And baptism is talked about, oftentimes the idea of baptizing with fire, that the word baptism is immersion. You're going to be immersed into suffering, immersed into pain. And Jesus says, guys, are you ready to handle the suffering that's coming? 
these guys are so, I guess, best case, naive, worst case, arrogant and full of themselves. Verse 39, they said to him, we are able. Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. He says, listen, guys, you're going to suffer. You're going to endure hardship. You're going to maybe even endure death. And in fact, James is the first of the apostles killed after Jesus ascends. But he continues, verse 40, But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Question. Who was at Jesus' right hand and left hand in his glory? Well, if you understand Jesus, you understand that the peak of his glory was on the cross. When he didn't just go low, he went all the way down. And who is at his right and left hand? A thief and a murderer. Jesus says, you don't even know what you're asking. Those aren't your spots to have. Verse 41, the ten hear it, they begin to be indignant at James and John. This is interesting. The other guys hear, hey, you approach Jesus about this? They're mad. Why are they mad? Well, well first, they, they probably are thinking, I was going to ask that. I wanted that spot. And second, they're probably upset because they're going, James and John just totally cut us out of this deal. Why wouldn't they at least want us part of it? So they're mad. Verse 42, Jesus gets everyone together. Guys, let's, let's, talk, let's talk this through. Teaching moment. i gotta, I got to correct you here. Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. He says, Guys, you know how it works in the world. You know that in the world the way up is up. The way to be great is to put others down, to exalt yourself. You know that's how it works. You lord it over people. But it shall not be so among you. Now, this is so strongly worded. Jesus is not saying, but you shouldn't do that. Jesus is saying, in my kingdom, it's not like that. And you're part of my kingdom. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. There's two different words there used. The word servant is the idea of someone uh, being like, maybe you might think of a waiter or a butler or a housekeeper. Someone that, you know, has, has some status, but they're still serving. Then in, in verse uh, 44, he uses the word slave. This is someone who has no rights, no voice, no position of respect or authority. Listen to what Jesus says. Because listen, Jesus isn't rebuking greatness. He's redefining it. Jesus never here or anywhere else says, hey guys, your problem is you want to be great. Never says that. What he says is your problem is you don't understand greatness. You followed the world's pattern that the way up is up. But listen, the way up is down. And so Jesus says, and you've got to look up here to kind of understand this. Jesus says this. He says, if you want to be great, you be a servant. But if you want to be first, you be a slave. See that? How great do you want to be? 
How willing to humble yourself and go low and be small and be overlooked and be forgotten. How willing are you to go there determines your greatness in God's eyes. That's what Jesus is saying. Why is it like that? Jesus tells us, verse 45, for, here's the reason, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus didn't come to be served, but to serve. Just like God didn't need to have a house built by David, he said, I'm going to establish your house. And Jesus serves, giving his life as a ransom for many, giving his life to be able to bring people back who are blind and deaf and can't experience him. Jesus gives his life. Listen, Jesus didn't use a hammer to become king. Jesus experienced the hammer to be king. For even the Son of Man didn't come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Are you starting to see Jesus? Are you buying in to Jesus' vision of greatness? I know that it's contrary to anything you've ever heard. I, I, I know that it's not how the world thinks or works. I know that we're inundated day after day, hour after hour with, with be great, have a brand, be important. Have you bought in yet to say the way up is down? Now, I'm so thankful for our church. I'm so thankful that so many people in this church see Jesus. And because people see Jesus and they see what his kingdom's really like, that it's an upside-down kingdom, they pour themselves out. They pour themselves out for foster kids. They pour themselves out for, for elderly parents that they're caring for. They pour themselves out for, for kids in schools, on sports team, coaching and volunteering and helping out. And they pour themselves out in our church. We have a 1,000-plus people that come every week, and that number seems to be going up. And 300-plus of that are kids. And a lot of people serve and, and pour themselves out because there's a lot of recognition? No. Why? Because they get Jesus. Do you get Jesus? Or are you still thinking that you'll just sort of add Jesus into your life and it'll help you go up? No. Jesus comes in, he reorients everything, and you go down, and he makes you great. This is part of the reason why, as a church, why we give you opportunities to serve. Serve in the community and serve in our church. It's not just because there's a lot of jobs that need to get done, and there are. It's not just because there's a lot of needs, but there are. The reason is because we believe that serving makes you like Jesus. You're never more like Jesus than when you serve and when you give. Why? Because God so loved the world that he gave. Now listen, we don't serve because he needs it, right? He said, I didn't come to be served, I came to serve. We serve because in Christ, that's what we're like. We are servants. Anyone can serve. Only God's people from the heart can become servants. Are you a servant? Are you practicing this getting low? 
We said last week as we looked at Jesus having all these kids brought to him and everyone was shooing him, him away, right, shooing the kids away. Jesus said, no, 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 I like the kids. You can't enter the kingdom of God unless you become like a helpless kid. We said Christ-like people love helpless kids. Now we see Christ-like people lower themselves to serve, especially when people can't pay it back. And so if, if you feel like touched at a heart like level at this. You go, I got to do something. I need some serving practice. I go into every room and I think, what's this going to do for me? I need, to, I need to change my thinking. We have a great opportunity for you to do that. And this isn't the whole point of the sermon. It's just a little parentheses. But when you came in, you saw tables with balloons and uh, face painting and all kinds of stuff. Hopefully you saw that. That's a group of people that lead our kids ministry. They're right in the middle of recruiting volunteers. We have nearly 100 people that serve kids at all three services over the course of, of a school year. And we'd love for you to be one of them. Specifically, we have needs at five o'clock. If you'd be willing to go really low and come back at five to help out every other week, there'd be a huge opportunity there. The point of this message isn't to recruit you to serve. Not in our kids' ministry. That'd be great. But it is to say, do you see Jesus? Really? Because here's part of it. I don't think you can really see Jesus until you take on his mindset and act as a servant. Now, all of that gets me to the part that I was most excited about 10 months ago. Because Mark is a brilliant author here. He is not just sort of randomly throwing stories together. We said at the very beginning of this series, he's like an expert documentary filmmaker. And he is crafting these scenes to flow and to go next to each other because he's trying to say something and move you. So what's next? What happens next in the story? Jesus says, I'm going to die. Those closest to him don't get it. They don't see him. Here's what's next. A blind guy who's the only person who sees Jesus. Look at verse 46. And they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. Did you know that Bartimaeus is the only person in Matthew, Mark, or Luke who receives a miracle from Jesus whose name we know? Everyone else goes unnamed, but we know Bartimaeus' name. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, now remember our story, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped. That word stopped means he stopped in his tracks. Whoosh. Stopped. He said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he's calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? Notice, that's the exact same question he asked James and John. What do you want me to do for you? He asked the same blind man. I think Mark has put these stories back to back so that you will see the contrast. He sees these two same questions. Look how different the responses are. What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, it's a term of endearment. It's a term of, of awe. 
Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, notice, no spit, no mud, no theatrics. Go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. The only person who sees Jesus is blind. Do you notice the contrast? Do you notice the difference? James and John, they're on the inside. You can't get any more inner circle than they are, and they can't see it. Bartimaeus is on the side of the road. He's blind. He's a beggar. You've been in places where there's, right, maybe by your work, there's people that beg day after day after day. You know how those people are like, hey, get, get out of here. It gets annoying. That's Bartimaeus. They're inside. He's outside. They say, teacher, instructor. What, is da- what, what does Bartimaeus say? Son of David. King, Messiah, promised one. He sees that. They don't see it. He does. What did James and John say when Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? They say, make us great. What does Martimaeus say? Be great. Have mercy on me. Let me see. You be great. I love this story. Because the only guy who sees is blind. Do you see Jesus? Do you see that he is the, not just a good teacher, he's the long-awaited king? Do you see that the nature of Jesus, the kingdom of Jesus, is totally upside down, where the way up is to go low? And do you see that Jesus has experienced the hammer so that you could experience sight? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so thankful for your word. I'm thankful for uh, the genius of a person like Mark, but especially the spirit who filled him as he wrote. And Father, I pray that you would give us eyes to see Jesus, to see him as he is, to see him in his glory on the cross, the one who gave his life as a ransom for many. God, we love you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.